What is up and welcome back to Zen Business, the show that studies health and mindfulness habits that ultra high performers use to reach the top of their industry and their craft. I'm your host, Jonathan Maxim, Managing Director at K&J Growth Hackers and founder of five digital companies. We've grown these companies to great levels and created an exciting and fulfilling life for our team members, but the truth is it was much more challenging than we ever could have imagined. All right, now let's jump in. So that was part of the decision. Wow. Um, it's just changed so much as a city. There used to be this beautiful return on investment of living there. And when I say investment, I don't just mean financially. I mean like the skin in the game, the how hard it was to get anywhere, the traffic, the getting around. And it was worth it for, for many years. The last year and a half, man, it just doesn't feel worth it. So we bailed and headed over to Scottsdale for a while. We can always go back. That's true. A lot of people say it's better to just like have a home in California than to actually live here, you know, like spend. Yeah, that's that's Lori's true goal is she wants to buy a place probably in in uh, Newport area, anywhere between Laguna and Newport and just have that be like a temporary place when it gets too hot here in summer. Yeah, that's actually uh, it's a great place. You know, it's it's got a lot of the, the financial benefits of, you know, I guess lower taxes and more of that kind of entrepreneurship culture, but not so much like hype and distraction, you know? Yeah, exactly. I've gotten too old for hype and distraction. You already, you already beat that scene. You already won that game. I'll tell you what, man, when my dad died in June, I just, it accelerated all the things I wanted in life. And, and, uh, it, it made me prefer space mentally, physically, metaphysically. And, uh, so coming here was an easy way to get all those things compared to being in busy, crowded Los Angeles, you know? Yeah. So a couple questions. Can you talk about those exits coming up or is it confidential? Um, yeah, I can talk about them generically. Okay. So if, if you wouldn't mind, tell me the genesis of these exits that, you know, the, the journey getting there is more interesting to me than the exit, even though the exit is. Well, so here's what's really interesting. One of them we're building ourselves. It's my wife's alcohol brand. The other one is a result of us being an investor and we're trying to set up our lives so that every year we have at least one exit. That means every year we've got to be betting on um, at least two or three great startups that meet our four criteria for investing in a startup. And you know, out of those, let's say three startups a year, the hope is that in four or five years down the road, that one of those three will pop. And when that happens, then every year, once we get into this cycle, starting this year, we're going to be able to hopefully manufacture at least one exit per year that, that adds to the, the bottom line. Wow. What a strategy. I, I've never even thought of, you know, if you're 30 years old and you invest in one company per year, in theory, or at least one company per year, in five years, you should be seeing exits on a regular basis. I mean, talk about a waterfall effect. That's exactly what we're going for is we're planting seeds right now. And well, I should take that back. We've been planting seeds the past few years in order to start to have some of these exits start to pop like this. And, um, you know, for some people, they're going to have to bet on five per year. Some people they are going to have to bet on seven or eight per year to get it right. It's going to be different for everybody. Here's the four criteria we use, though, to really dial it in pretty good. Number one, we're always betting on the entrepreneur. We're always betting on the person first and foremost. And, and here's why. I think we see great ideas fail all the time because there's not a good leader at the helm. But then we also see 
pretty mediocre ideas turn into epic companies because they have an incredible leader. So right there is why, number one, we're always betting on the entrepreneur, on the founder, first and foremost. Second, though, is the product, is the idea. It has to be disruptive, but it can't be disruptive in a way that you're creating a brand new sector because it's hard enough to build a successful company. Trying to also build the market, the sector around it, that's darn near impossible. And I don't want to you know, be someone's guinea pig for that. So when I say it's got to be a disruptive product, it has to be a really exciting iteration of an idea or a product in an already rising tide. And I can talk about rising tides in a little bit. The third thing that we look for is what's their path to an exit? Meaning who are the likely suitors who would buy them? How likely is it that they would get acquired or do an IPO? How much capital do they have? How much of a runway do they have to get there? And how much capital do they actually have access to? Like, do they already have relationships with hedge funds? Do they already have have they done this in the past so they know how to not just do your seed round, but your series A and everything else after that? So number three is, you know, like, what's the runway to get there? How likely is it? And then number four is probably what makes our investing a little bit different than some other people, like just institutional investors. Number four, we have to be able to move the needle for this company in one way or another. So whether it's an area of expertise we have, some connections we have, whether we're leveraging our large, large audience because it fits our audience well. We have to be involved in moving the needle in that company in one way or another, or really, if you just have three out of the four, you're just gambling. We feel like we have a little bit of control over it when we can move the needle for the company. Yeah, I can totally empathize with that. So oftentimes, if I'm taking on an angel investment, I'll say it's not a contingency, but I, if I'm going to be a part of this, I at least want to direct the marketing strategy and in a perfect world run the parts that I'm expert at. You know, we can keep the other stuff in different departments, but if I have a hand in that success and I have skin in the game and the team and all of our case studies, there's a, a high likelihood, you know, I'm going to take accountability for my own success on the project, which ultimately waterfalls back to the company. So that's exactly it. So if you can use those criteria and plant three or four, maybe five really good seeds every year, then down the road, you should, in theory, have at least one exit per year, even if you have to skip a year once in a while. That's going to be, you know, it's one of the best ways to to build your bottom line, to build your portfolio in large chunks at a time. By the way, we want into a company that you are an investor in, Sugar Taco. Uh, We just missed the deadline for the round for their newest restaurant. I think it was in Sherman Oaks. Yeah. And we got the invitation late, but the side effect is Lori's become friends with the founder. What's her name again? I forget. Jade? Yes. Lori and Jade have become friends. The minute they do one in Scottsdale here. Consider us in, man. We, we better get first invitation for that restaurant. First right of refusal. Yes. Pro rata. Consider it done. Yeah, they just uh, invited me to join a new round for a new tequila company that they're doing that has already gotten acquisition offers. I think because all the girls have such an audience that come with them, it makes it a really easy proposition. So first, I will explore that one. Second, I'll, I'll ping Jessica, my primary contact there, and, and ask her about the next sugar taco because I'm sure they would be open to doing one in Arizona. I mean, obviously, yeah, so we'll put one right here in Scottsdale. It's exploding. The economy is insane. Everybody's moving from the West Coast cities here, right? The demographic is right. The timing is right. That'd be a really cool restaurant to bring to town here. You know yeah, what's interesting? You just said about the, the tequila acquisition. There's an arms race right now in the alcohol space. So, you know, my wife has Light Pink, the alcohol startup, the upscale can seltzers. Same thing. We haven't even sold a can yet. And there's already been interest in acquisition. Wow. And here's why. All the great big alcohol companies, Anheuser-Busch, Constellation Brands, you name it, 
they realized real quickly that with COVID, everybody got retrained on how they're going to buy and how they're going to consume their alcohol. And they're out there literally seeking out anybody who's good at direct to consumer. They're out there seeking out anybody that can crack that code the way Gary Vee did with Empathy Wines and had a record nine-figure exit in like 11 months, guys. That's Jeez. insane. Wait, no, Gary's was 18 months. Ashlyn Seltzer, I believe, is the, the other one that's going to be you know in, in record time. They're out there seeking these out, and they are looking for anybody that has cracked this code on sh- shipping alcohol direct to consumer because it's how everyone's been retrained. There's so many epic new behaviors that have come out of this COVID thing, right? So I'm all about the silver linings. And that's one of them is people like my parents who would have never bought alcohol online. They would have never ordered DoorDash. They would have never done any of those things. They had no choice but to learn how. And once they learned how, now they're saying, oh, wait, shit, this is way more convenient. I'm never leaving the house again. So we've never seen such a shift in, in consumer behavior like we have because of the past year that we just had. So embrace it. There's freaking opportunity everywhere as a result. Yeah, you'd think that alcohol is such a crowded space and there's no room for new entrants. But one, like you said, anyone who's good on direct-to-consumer can, you know, people. it's like nightclubs. People always want a new label to try out, to, to have fun with, et cetera. And the alcohol brand that I have invested in, they had all these sales projections for 2020 and then these got washed away with COVID. So they went to RTD, ready to drink and, and e-commerce. And then they hit their sales targets without ever selling in a damn bar. Yeah, that's what's changed is, guys, like picture the how the restaurant scope has changed. Trust me, this is not the last round of lockdowns, no matter what anyone tells you, no matter where you fall in politics. And when they shut down restaurants, that kills alcohol sales. And so the side, side effect has been states that had really strict shipping laws around alcohol, they quickly lost their alcohol tax, which is a huge source of revenue. So they said, oh, wait a minute, never mind. We need to review these 60, 70, 80 year old laws and make it a little bit more convenient to be able to buy and ship and go direct to consumer. So it's working in, in, in the favor of anybody with an alcohol startup right now that does RTDs, ready to drinks, because now restaurants have shifted from mixing a drink to wanting to give you an RTD. Same thing when you go into like dry bar, you know, dry bar, the, the hair place for, for women, they used to give you um, champagne, they pour it in a glass. Now they want to give you an RTD. The entire behavior of what people think is safe when it comes to serving you alcohol has totally changed. And so if you've got an RTD and if you can do direct to consumer, this is your time to shine. That's amazing. And then, you know, for those listeners who are interested in investing, like be on the lookout for deal flow like this, you know, when you hear Chris talking about these kind of things, this is the, it's what in finance, you know, if you're looking at the charts, this is what we call the accumulation phase. There's the bulls and the bears buying and selling, buying and selling, and it eventually consolidates and then takes off. That's when things go parabolic. And we're right at that accumulation phase where we're going to see that uptick. And that's when I think what we're experiencing right now. And at the beginning of COVID, I noticed that the yard house uh, down the street from me was selling like uh, a plastic cup full of alcohol. And it was like, have like uh, saran wrap, keeping it all tight and close. That was like a a tiny baby step toward a huge change. And now I'm I'm glad to see that you're on the forefront of that, but RTD is is just blowing up. And I think all all of e-commerce, all of, you know, convenience and safety is, it's not going away, like you said. Yeah, it's not, you know, we're seeing restaurants lessen their footprint, right? I think Sugar Taco is a good example. They're no longer these large spans of restaurants where with tons of seating inside, they're quick. Some of the largest restaurant chains in the world are quickly changing their model to a little bit of seating, but way more takeout focused and outdoor dining focused where they can. And all of those things are going to lead to 
RTDs, things where they're easy to serve and pour and crack open and ship. Anyone that enters that space, this is their time. Beautiful. So can I, can I rewind a little bit, Chris? I mean, just so that everyone has a little bit more context. Chris is the king of money mindset. He, he's really who I look to when it comes to having a, a mindful, healthy relationship with money and respecting it and planning with it. So I think everyone's dream is to be an investor like you, right? We all want to you know, use our money to make money for us, to have a hand in these companies and watch them succeed. But I think a lot of people haven't made their first angel investment or even other you know, financial investments yet. So can you tell me about like what it was like the first time you wrote a check for 10, 20, 30, 50 grand and, and how much it hurt and why you still did it? Man, what a great question. You know, I know you're asking about angel investing and in, in, in investing in startups, but I want to answer that question by saying the first time that we wrote, let's say, a $25,000 check to something was investing in ourselves. It was in a mastermind for Lori to go to. Jack Canfield was running it. And at the time, it seemed asinine because we hadn't done it before. We thought, wait a second, this program is $25,000. It was a lot of money to us at the time, but something felt right about doing it. And so sure enough, we moved forward. Lori entered the, the program and it changed her trajectory and it changed her life forever. So before we get into like investing in other people's dreams and other people's startups and other people taking the chance, you really just got to invest in yourself and make yourself the leanest, meanest income producing machine that you can so that you have all of that revenue and have all that money in order to go and plant those excess seeds elsewhere. You see, here's what people get wrong is they live on their active income. And active income is, let's say I'm coaching you and you give me X number of dollars. For That's active income. I have to work for it. You need to take that active income, treat it as the seeds, plant those seeds in yourself first so that you can create this, you know, like I said, this incredible income producing machine out of yourself. Then take that income, those seeds, and go plant them in things that are going to bear dividends, that's going to be passive income, that's going to have exits, and make sure you're diversified in how you do it. Where people get it wrong is they either skip investing in themselves or they rush out to shiny opportunities before getting educated and you know, they end up losing money once and they say, oh, I'm never going to do this again. Nothing is ever that black and white. Nothing is ever, it works or it doesn't work. So if you got burnt once, you can't say, oh, I'm never going to do it again. You have to say, I need to get re-educated about this. I need to slow down and I need to go make an educated decision next time instead of an emotional decision. So I know that was not the answer you're looking for, but I'm just really passionate about that's the first place your money's got to go is invest in yourself. It reminds me of the quote for relationships, which is it's only once you love yourself, can somebody else love you? Yeah. Right. It's only once you've invested in yourself and, and gotten either burned or had success that you can be educated enough to make an investment in another company. Yep. Now, I was listening to the Naval podcast and he was talking about uh, typically more amateur investors want more diversification because they have less specialized knowledge. It's not a bad thing. It's just a, risk mitigation technique. But early on, you kind of got to spread seeds. And, and and it's not bad. You know, as you get more expert, you narrow out. And, you know, it's it's a really good methodology to just invest in yourself first. Most people I talk to who I'm like, go hire a coach. That, that That's one of my first recommendations. Hire a coach, buy a course, just start reading up on this stuff. And I remember the first time I bought something for business, I was like, this has to come out of my personal money. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do it. I remember resisting it for a long time. It's, it, here's what's interesting. The order of which we need to invest our money is this. You know, number one, invest in yourself in order to make yourself really effective at creating income. Then number two, with that new income that you're able to create, 
invest in just setting aside that emergency fund. We used to recommend six months worth of expenses. And I think COVID taught us that six months is not enough. You know, you could need 12 months like that. So invest in building up that emergency fund, then invest in paying off your debts. And, and there's where people get it wrong sometimes is they will chase down debts before setting aside money for other emergencies. They're just going to keep causing them to go back in debt. So, you know, next chase down those unsecured debts. Then after you have those unsecured debts paid, that's when you can start exploring other types of investments like angel investing. I would say first fully fund more traditional investments, like a, whether it's you qualify for a Roth IRA, your 401k match, never go beyond what, it, what your company's matching for you. If you don't qualify for those things, then simple index funds that you can start through Vanguard or anybody else. Make sure you've got those basics in place for your future because nothing pays more consistently. Matter of fact, if you look back at the, the history of the markets of index funds, they pay an average of 9 to 11% counting every boom, every bust, every bubble, every pop, they've averaged 9 to 11% year over year since we've been tracking this. So there's nothing more consistent than playing that long-term game in something like a low-fee index fund. After all of that, when you have income, when you have money left over, seeds left over, then go plant them in startups. Because the truth is startups are probably the most risky of all the places you can put your money. Because you don't have a lot of control over many of the factors that make or break a company, right down to things like luck and timing. And so that's when I recommend that people write that first 10, 25, $50,000 check is after you first knocked those other things off the list. Yeah. And just when you're analyzing a startup investment, there's a lack of data as well, right? I mean, there's the whole manifestation and luck component, but you just don't have as much data, right? Like invest in Apple, they've got a lot of track record, right? Right. I look at my wife's deck. So we we had five years of financials created for this deck, right? And we're talking as in-depth of financial modeling as you could possibly get down to the skew, except all of it is guessing and all of it is based on industry trends, right? In this industry, in Which this- all changed last year. The trend is this, yeah. So no matter how much effort we put into, we spent $20,000 on financial modeling, right? Down to the skew for five years worth of what we think is gonna happen. But at the end of the day, it's a coin flip. And something in the economy is going to change, something in demand is going to change, something in what's trending is going to change. And we're going to have to be able to adjust to fit that change. And that's why it goes back to number one, way earlier when I said the first thing we bet on is not the product, not the market, but the entrepreneur, the founder. Because if you have a founder that already has good pedigree, they already know how to win, they already know how to do business, they already know um, how to change with the times and how to quickly adjust those are the ones I'm going to bet on every single time. You just can't count on the data, like you're just saying, that somebody gives you in a deck for a startup because it's not going to play out that way. So, you know, I think what you're advising or warning is that, like, don't get ahead of yourself, right? We all kind of know, we get that intuitive feeling that we're getting ahead of ourselves. Listen to that intuition. So can you tell me about a time when you uh, didn't follow that intuition, you made an investment and you lost money and it really hurt? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had 50 grand into a uh, vegan coffee creamer startup. It was a, a play on protein, right? So a lot of times people with a vegan diet don't get enough protein. At least that's the stigma out there. And it was a really cool product. The problem is, is one of our earliest investments and they didn't really have good access to funds, not the way that they needed. Remember my rule number three is what's the runway to an exit. And they had plenty of runway to start with their initial seed round. But they quickly learned that, you know, that path from buying inventory 
and then waiting till you sell through and waiting until you actually receive the money back from the stores, that's 90 to 120 to sometimes 150 or 180 days. And what happened is they got stuck in this cycle where they couldn't raise more money and they had already given away too much of the company and they didn't have any money to produce any more product, even though it was sold out because they were waiting on the revenue. And so they just fell into this unfortunate situation where they weren't able to keep selling and keep bringing in enough revenue and they had to go out of business. Well, actually, they, they didn't go out of business. They ended up partnering, doing a, a merger with somebody else. So there was a bit of a silver lining out of it. But we didn't get any great return on our investment in that transaction. And that's just one of the things that you learn when it comes to, to investing. Here's another example, too. One of my first exits was a mortgage bank that I was a partner in. And the, the way we invested in that one was by leaving profits in the mortgage bank. This is a good lesson for everybody. Now, the guy that brought me in as a partner and, and that we worked out this deal with, he came to a verbal agreement with me on how this was going to work and how I was going to build equity in this company. And then I said, great, let's get this thing in writing. And before you know it, 90 days went by and we didn't have it in writing. So I said, hey, man, we need to get this in writing. Yeah, don't worry, no problem. Then 180 days have gone by. Hey, listen, I'm serious now. Like, we need to get everything we talked about in writing or I can't continue on. And uh, yep, no problem. Sorry, made it back burner. You know how busy you were because we were, we were killing it. Let me get that in writing. Finally get something in writing, probably month seven or eight, maybe almost month nine. And if you're listening to your st the story and you're like, why the hell would this guy stick around for nine months before getting it in writing? Well, I didn't have any other choices, right? At that point I had skin in the game and, and uh, I didn't have a lot of other options. So I, I just wanted to believe that this was going to happen the way it happened or the way it was supposed to happen. So they finally get a contract in front of me and it's nothing what we agreed upon. So then we spent another three months arguing over what the equity split should look like. And he had another partner that wasn't making the deal. So here's, here's a tip to everybody. Make sure all partners are at the table. You can't just negotiate with one. So long story short, two years into this thing, it was nothing but a knockdown drag out fight. And I won't share the numbers, but I ended up getting just 25 to 30%, and almost 30% of the equity that I had built in that company when I finally pulled the trigger and left. And so my lesson to everybody is don't put any skin in the game until you have what you want in writing. So whether that is terms when you're an angel investor, whether that is when you're partnering with somebody, you need to make sure contracts keep friends. Contracts are, you know, they make or break your future. And I got screwed a significant multi, multi, multi six figures on that one, but it'll never happen again. So in a way I was gifted the value of a really good lesson. It's a lesson that was learned on six figures instead of seven or eight figures. That's, that's the way that I like to look at it. It's, this is a blessing. This is a a small loss to teach me about a macro potential loss. And I, I guess what I'm trying to explore and understand is how did you deal with that pain? Did you journal it? Like, you know, th there had to be tribulations that you went through. And how did you turn those? Obviously, you turned them into learnings. So I want to understand that genesis. I dealt with the pain back then. So this was what is it, 2021 right now? This was 11 years ago, um, about 10 years ago. 
I dealt with it by saying, never again, I'm going to literally go out there with my wife, Lori, and we're going to just going to carve out our own destiny. And we didn't invest in any companies. We didn't partner with anybody. We didn't do anything except for go out there and make hay on our own for the first several years. Now, listen, that can be effective, but collaboration is way better. Collaboration, investing in other companies and working with other people and bringing on partners when needed, it's better when you get it right. And so you can't let the pendulum swing too far one way or the other. You can't be frivolous and just think that handshake deals are going to happen. But you also can't say, you know what, it's me and nobody else and I'm going to do it myself. Matter of fact, one of the things that triggers me that I can't stand the most is when people say self-made. And I, don't, I know they don't mean anything negative when they say it most of the time. I know they say it from a, a place of pride. They're proud of how far they've come. But the truth is no one's self-made. And the more you collaborate, the bigger your dreams are going to get realized. You know, to say that you're self-made means not one single employee, not one single team member, not one single um, contractor, not one single customer was involved. And none of that is true for anybody. And so you can't do it alone and you can't do it frivolously by trusting other people. You have to find that happy medium where you're making smart, educated decisions that have some skin in the game that you can bring to the table, but also relies on other people's talents that you don't have. And when you get that right, you you know, everything will start falling into place for you. Yeah. I remember when I did my first company, it was a tech startup and I brought a partner in and I was so relieved because half of the workload was now taken off me. All the design or all the development of the iOS and Android app were now taken off my plate. I wasn't managing the devs anymore. And I called my best friend at the time. I was like, dude, you got to get a business partner. And it was all great until uh, we had a big falling out in the company. We, we had a term sheet for an investment of, you know, 2 million uh, from a celebrity investor that fell through. And then things went sour because I had been funding this company and I was left with $35,000 in debt from it. So I, then I, this is the genesis, I then hated partnerships after that. I'm like, I'm never working with somebody else again. And now I've come back around like, I, I need other people. People, it just needs to be a fit and it just needs to have some expectations set and some understandings, AKA things in writing. And, and these can fit together. But if you're, if you're a lone ranger, you're going to have a lot more trouble. Unless, I would say the only exception is maybe like a trader, a hedge fund manager, just, just a trader, just a trader. That's the only person who can do that. Yeah, but you almost have to consider that active income. Even if you're a day trader and you're, you're doing it by yourself, that's active income. If you are sick and you don't day trade today, you don't make income unless for some reason you've left something out there in your portfolio and it happens to get lucky and make money. I think what you just said is, is brilliant. You know, it's more fun and you can go further together with somebody else, but you got to choose the right people. And so if you've been burnt, this is like your wake-up call to not build that story that there aren't any good partnerships out there. There are, there, there's tremendous ones. But if you also have you know, made frivolous decisions, then you've got to look for where you owned that mistake, where you owned that part of the relationship and learn from that and never make that mistake again. Yeah, I mean, it's just like in dating, right? You, you date the wrong people 10 times and then you, you set yourself up to all the things you don't want and now you can find what you do want, right? Man, I've been married for 15 years. I have forgotten any lessons from dating. <laughs> Congratulations. It's, it's really, really empowering and inspirational. So Chris, I, um, I did a, a session with my coach uh, about two years ago. He was, he's like uh, the business monk, as he's called. So he's the marrying of uh, business and spirituality essentially and i went over to his house he doesn't have any furniture sitting on the floor in his living room in venice just on a meditation pad and 
That's so Venice, by the way. Yeah, it's the most Venice thing that ever happened. There was like a burning thing in the middle and we were all on these little meditation pods and no lighting, it was just candlelit. Anyway, so we did this meditation on money and uh, we, we journaled about different relationships and experiences that we have with money, explored our, uh, our attachment to it, and then we set an intention. Uh, at the time, I think I was making like 40 grand a month with my agency. I was taking home like 10 grand a month in profit. And I set the intention, I said, I want to make 100 grand a month and I want to make it in six months from now. And I remember at the time that was completely unfeasible. Like just in my kind of business, you hit glass ceilings. It's hard to expand past one person per capacity in the company. So I didn't really see how I would get there. Sure enough, five months later, we got a contract with TikTok and we're making 200 grand a month off of this. And it's black magic. I was like, what the fuck, right? This, how did I just randomly burn this little note into this meditation session with Dave, my wonderful coach? I thank him to this day because he showed me what was possible just by asking for it and, and understanding our relationship to money, not having attachment to it. Because whether you make 10 grand or 100 grand a month doesn't matter. It's all about like just where we want to go with it. There was this weird spiritual event that happened. That was the first time I broke six figures in a month was after I asked for it. So I, I'm really curious about this topic. I think you have a, a really great relationship with money. You teach a lot of people about money, money mindfulness. And I would love to hear your perspective on, have you had any weird experiences like that? And, and like, what is the spiritual component of money? How do we relate to this? How much energy do we give it? How much energy does it give us? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so here's what's really fascinating about that. This always falls in one of two camps the logical camp and the woo-woo camp, right? So the woo-woo camp would say, he put his intention out there and the universe delivered. And then the logical camp would say, you know, he put his intention out there and it wasn't the universe delivering. It was him subconsciously now having a target. When you have a target, you know where to go. And when you know where to go, you're that much more likely to get there. And it doesn't matter if you're in the logical camp or if you're in the woo-woo camp, the whole point is this, the actions, the exercise of literally concentrating on and deciding on exactly what you want in your mind and looking at it every single day and reinforcing it with what I call positive propaganda, which reinforces how you want to believe instead of negative propaganda that's just going to fall into your lap. I don't care if you're team logical or team woo-woo. Both of those teams have to agree on that exercise in itself produces massive results. And I don't even know where I fall in these two camps. I feel like it changes day to day from logical to woo-woo, right? So consider me right down the middle of the highway there. But I feel like right now, things are manifesting faster for us and easier for us than ever, ever before. Uh, You asked if anything like this has happened. So just two weeks ago, I said to Lori and to my team, I'm like, you know what? I think I want to do this four-day event. I think I want to do it in fall. And I think I want it to look a lot like what my annual mastermind looks like, only no mastermind, just the four days. And they said, okay, well, let's start ideating on it a little bit. So I started ideating on it a little bit, put it in my journal, like got this idea today. Here's exactly what I want to do. A week later, I meet somebody for the very first time who's really big in e-com. And I can't tell you who it is right now, but, but you would know who it is. And we do a, an event or not an event, but we, we have a thing together. And then uh, he says, you know what? I've got an idea. Come out to the house. So I went out to the house yesterday and he says, here's the idea. I want to do an event, like a three to four day event. And I've seen you do these things. And I want it to be all about e-com. And I want to leverage my my massive 100,000 plus customer list and everything else. I want to leverage all of that and put this thing on. 
would you ever be interested in partnering because you know how to put it on and how to run this thing? That happened in less than a 10 day or so span. And so once again, the logical person would say, well, it happened because you decided that you wanted it to happen. You started looking for opportunities and maybe you said something or maybe you you planted the seed somehow in conversation. And maybe I did. Or the woo-woo side would say, you put it out there and the universe delivered. And all you have to do is just keep putting it out there and what you ask for, you're going to get. Here's one thing that I really believe in, Jonathan. The concept of careful what you ask for because you are going to get it. And so you absolutely have to concentrate all the time on how, what you're asking for in terms of your money, what you're asking for in terms of your opportunity. You have to be crystal clear with yourself so that whether it's team logical, you can, someone can understand your vision or team woo-woo, the universe can you know, know what to give you. You have to be crystal clear with what you want and you have to ask for it. Ask yourself of it, journal it, remind yourself of it. Post it every damn where if you have to, because the more that you focus on it, I don't care how it's getting delivered, it's going to get delivered. And I've had a thousand examples like that in my life. Well, considering that you've coached thousands of people, I can only imagine the number of times that you've seen these serendipitous things, call it serendipitous or, you know, manufactured, whatever. But, you know, the funny thing about this TikTok thing is one, they found us through SEO, right? So they just Googled growth hacking in Los Angeles. Second, like I had never closed a deal of that caliber. And I remember they were like, okay, we want this many downloads at this price. And I looked at my partner, I was like, dude, that's $260,000. Our $26,000 contract is nice for me. How am I going to get them to write a check for 260 grand? And I just like gently touched on it on a call. And they're like, no, yeah, that's, that's where we're aiming with this. And I was just like elated. I hadn't even closed a deal yet. But anyway, all of that was a bunch of chance stuff. Right. It wasn't, I do not want to give myself the credit and talent. It was a chance because you said they found you through SEO. So somewhere you were responsible in that chain for having the right SEO and doing the right things in order for them to find you. So team logical would say, no, man, you did this team. Woo would say, Hey, you put it out there with your spiritual coach. And then it showed up again. I don't know where I even fall on that highway somewhere down the middle. I can tell you this, my, my tattoo right here says live as a universe conspires in your favor. And I think if that is what you believe, that things will conspire in your favor, whether it's logical people or whether it's the universe, things will conspire in your favor if you know what exactly you want and you ask for it. And that's what you did. You asked for $100,000 a month. You got about $200,000 a month. And it's, you know, you said they found you through SEO. So logical team would say, well, yeah, you did the work and, and you made it happen. But then your coach, if you went back to him, I don't know if you ever did, would say, see, we put it in the, the circle. We burnt it. You were focused on it and it happened. Who cares how it happens? Just leverage the shit out of the fact that this actually happens. And it does. I, don't, I, th- I think not enough people recognize that you can't create your own luck there. There's no doubt about that. And I think there's another, a whole sect of people like in the entrepreneurship world, the last year has actually been really good for a lot of us. But I think there's a lot of people who are, you know, who didn't have such a great year. And you know, what, are you, what are your recommendations to somebody who doesn't have a good relationship with money right now? Uh, maybe they have attachment issues. Maybe they're not making enough. Maybe they feel stuck or they don't have a good relationship with themselves and it's affecting how they show up. Like what, what would you recommend to somebody who's making five grand a month and really wants to break through the next level? Okay. So this question could be tactical or this question can be, how do I get my mindset right? So I'm going to start with how do you get your mindset right? The first thing is this, go get two books, listen to them on audio, read them. I don't care. Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, it's about a thousand years old. I'm exaggerating, but T. Harvecker wrote it a long time ago. It's a little cheesy, 
but it truly helps to reframe how you see your stories about money. And as many, like many people who read this, this is the first time they realize that past actions have created this colored lenses that you look through and this colored lenses you look through determines how you see money and that consciously or subconsciously determines your actions and your actions are going to determine your outcome. So go read that book, Secrets of Millionaire Mind, and then go read You're a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero. That's another great book. You read those two books and you're going to start to get your mind right. When you start to get your mind right, then you want to start to get your actual tactical approach right. That's what my show, the Chris Harder show talks about all the time, the, the tactical side of uh, what to do to create more money, what to do to boost your business, you know, what to do to, to take care of your finances. If you're in a tough financial spot right now, there's so many free resources out there that you, you money is not a barrier of entry. You got to get rid of that belief. There's enough books. I consider books free in this day and age. There's enough podcasts. There's enough, you know, uh, four video e-courses, you name it. There's enough information out there for free for you to learn the tactical things that you need to do in order to get your finances in order. So there's no excuses anymore. The only excuses is that you didn't want to take action because there's no barrier of entry out there. I don't care who you are to making that decision to get your finances in order. And it starts with your mind. And, and here's why it starts with your mind. I can prove this. If you have a, there, people have two problems, right? They either have an income problem or a spending problem. That's it. It all boils down to that. So if you have an income problem, then you can learn the tactical moves to boost your income. The problem is if you have a spending problem and you boost your income, all you're going to do is increase your spending to match your new higher income. So that means you need to address your spending problem. And when you address your spending problem, that's more of a mindset issue. It's more of a, what gap are you trying to fill? What story are you trying to make true? Uh, what emotional triggers are causing you to go out and spend money? I talked to somebody yesterday. It's really funny. She asked me, she was like, hey, I thought I had, like, I thought I was ready to get my finances in order. And I went out and I spent $800 I didn't have on shoes and, you know, nails and this and that, blah, blah, blah. She's like, it's like, I literally can't stop. And she goes, I wanted to stop. I wanted to take care of my money. I had a little bit of savings finally saved up and I sabotaged it. What's wrong with me? So nothing's wrong with you. You haven't figured out what emotional triggers, what voids you're trying to fill, what dopamine hit you're trying to get by going out and buying those shoes and getting the, your nails done and doing all the things that you did yesterday that cost you 800 bucks. Because we're all going to fill these voids with something. You know, mine is, is working out. Mine is working to a fault. We all fill our voids with something. You got to fill your voids with something that's going to be productive. Yeah. I mean, I, I can safely, not safely, I can confidently say that I felt addicted to work before, but part of me is not mad about it because at least I'm producing for other people. I've got employees who make money when I make money, I'm being productive for myself. I'm naturally having challenging experiences, which make me a better human. But you, you touched on something that's really curious to me, and that's that uh, we all have this hole that we're trying to, trying to fill, and that's where the mindfulness and the money meet. It's like, what's my relationship with money? How much energy am I giving it? How much energy, energy is it giving me? Why am I uh, dedicating so much energy to this? Am I, am I attached to it? Do I either like grab onto it or do I just like purposely throw it because I want to feel that dopamine of buying stuff? And, that's a really interesting study. I think everybody should should observe is, is journal on your relationship with money and learn to, to not resent it. Don't hate it because of what you've been told. Instead, respect it. It's like a motorcycle. It comes fast, it goes fast, right? 
and it can kill you, right? So you got to respect it. If it helps, you know, I can use myself as an example. So if I was left to my devices, I would go out and buy cars all the time. I love cars. I can vouch for that. I'm going out and buying a car that I'm excited about is 10 out of 10. The problem is as soon as I get it home and it's, you know, a few weeks old, it's just another car. And where this came from, I had to explore where this came from. It came from when I was a little kid. I always loved cars. You know, I was a kid with the typical car posters on the wall and, and all that stuff. That wasn't the problem. The problem was I remember going with my parents to pick out their cars. And it was this fun experience for some reason. I loved the experience. It was exciting getting this new car as a kid. I can remember it like it was, like it was yesterday. And then it happened once. Then I remember it happening a second time. I went to go get a new car with my mom. Then my mom, and I don't know, I've never dug into this, but she went on a streak where she started getting a new car like, like every year for a few years. And I'd go along and it was something we would do together. It was fun. We'd drive through car lots. We'd pick out cars. She'd go get a new one. We'd be there at the dealership together. We'd drive it home together. And it was that dopamine hit as a kid, the thrill, the excitement of going and picking out new cars with mom that stuck with me as an adult that causes me to go out and seek that same feeling subconsciously by going out and buying them on my own. Now, here's the crux. I can go buy anything I want right now and it won't matter financially in terms of cars, but it's still filling some kind of void that can be very counterproductive. And so I'm sure some psychologist is going to hear this and disagree, but here's what I've figured out in life so far. We're always going to have some kind of addiction to these dopamine hits. It's up to us to shift where we get them from. I'm sure somebody who's more educated than me would come here and say, no, there's a way we can turn it off. No, there's a way we can do this. And great. But my humble adult opinion is I'm always going to have a vice. I'm always going to seek these dopamine hits one way or another. So I've got to go seek them in productive ways. So I'm not just out there buying cars all the time because it still comes up in me all the time. Like, Ooh, I should go get this. Ooh, I should go get that. And it's not actually bringing any lasting long-term happiness. Wow. I appreciate your sense of ownership and, and confidence and, and your faults, right? Like to, to understand that you have that, that pull is, is step one, right? Bringing awareness to it. And you can still go buy a car and you'll probably still get a ton of thrill out of it. But one, you're probably going to use the car more often now. Two, you're going to think about why you did it. I mean, more than likely, it's because you want more of that connection you felt with your mom. Maybe it's time to visit mom more often, which I know you've been doing. You've been spending a lot of time with your family and bless your father's soul. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to, to see that he passed. Um, looked like he had a huge impact. But that's what it really sounds like you're yearning. And the car is just literally a vehicle to get back to mom. No pun intended, right? A vehicle to get back to mom. Yeah, a big, uh, what is that thing called, a camper? Yeah, the motorhome. Oh, man, don't ask me about that. I bought three motorhomes last year, so apparently I haven't fixed this vice completely. Damn, three. <laughs> I thought it was crazy you were buying one. I'm like, wow, dude, I'm one day. You know what? I, 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 let me talk to that real quick. So that was not a case of like wanting the dopamine hit. That was different. When I was a little kid, my favorite vacations growing up is my parents would borrow my grandparents' motorhome. And it was the most affordable family vacation for us. So they would take off for a week or two weeks and borrow grandma and grandpa's motorhome and we would go somewhere. And those were my best memories growing up. And so again, you always got to look back in your childhood, what's triggering your desires now? Well, I've carried that desire for many years into adulthood. Although it didn't seem practical to go out and buy a bus because, you know, I'm working, Lori's working, I'm only 43 and 
you know, it's what old people do. And so I never really took it seriously, even though the desire was there. When dad died this past June, Hugh died totally unexpectedly. He was the poster child for being so healthy at 72 and having so much purpose. And, and like, if anyone was going to be in their 70s, you wanted to be in your 70s in this way. And it was totally unexpected and totally out of the blue. And when he passed, something flipped in me that said, life is way too short. Go do what you want to do right now. And so not as a result of trying to fill that void of what I felt when I was a little kid motorhoming, but instead honoring saying, Hey, you know what? I put myself in position to be able to do this. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. I'm going to go and I'm going to get a motorhome and we're going to start taking these, these long motorhome vacations because we put ourselves in position to do so. That was a healthy decision based on finances and based on realizing what I really want to do in life. And I think the real story there is make sure you know why you're buying something. Don't buy it to fill that dopamine hit like I do with cars. Do it because it is a real desire. Like I've got a real desire to see the country in that slow manner. Do it because you know that making that purchase, making that investment is going to be something that's going to create memories and that's going to be something that that you're able to take with you for many years to come. So you really got to have a lot of self-awareness around why you're buying and why you're doing something. Because now here we are a year later and I can't wait to, to get back behind the wheel. Like I love this thing. So it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you're probably using it pretty often, but I think you captured a really articulate nuance and that's that it's not bad to have uh, shadows or insecurities or memories that you're trying to either fill or recreate. It can be completely healthy to have a motorhome. In fact, it could add a lot to your life, right? Like you go out and see Idaho, you go out and see Wyoming, right? But how you relate to that experience, right? Is this out of insecurity? Is this out of filling a void? Or is this out of me wanting to, you know, uh, spend more time with my mom or to, to experience America in a more present way? And now, now that you're telling me about it, it sounds really awesome. I, I want to do it out of a, a desire to explore and I encourage people to think about that, how you relate to those experiences, because it's like, it's not bad to have sports cars. I have a sports car. I'm obsessed with them as well. And I have only one right now and I want to buy more, but I will drive them half as much because I there's only one me, right? Each car will get half as much enjoyment for me, right? So, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to think about why I want to buy these cars. And, and I, I often step back and say like, okay, let, first let the emotion burn off. Let this desire build for a little while and then uh, hitch it on a certain uh, goal that I hit. So once I close this deal, I can buy this car. Once I do X, Y, Z, I can give myself the gift. And then you have a really healthy relationship with the reward and the, the input and the blood, sweat and tears. And that's what makes you get out and drive the, the motorhome more often is because you did put in blood, sweat and tears. You did think about the deeper why behind buying it. And now you're probably getting time, 10 times as much enjoyment and life out of it than the next guy, right? Dude, I've got two. So you, you just reminded me, I've got two points that I want to make on this. And they're both around healthy purchasing. Point number one is this. When you picture, like you're like, hey, I want another car. I want another car. When you picture yourself buying something, I want you to quickly ask yourself, do you picture being excited because you get to show or tell somebody that you got this? Or do you picture being excited because you can see yourself using it, enjoying it a year from now? That's the litmus test. And if you're honest with yourself, like, ah, uh, I'm actually just really excited to put this on Instagram, or I'm just really excited for so-and-so to see me pull up in this, right? Or so, so-and-so to see me wear this watch or whatever it might be. And that can be your reminder that, hey, you're buying it for the wrong reason. But if 
that doesn't come up. If you cannot picture anyone that you're excited about seeing it, but instead you can look a year down the road and still see yourself being excited about that purchase, that's when you know it's a good decision to make, a good purchase to make. So that's point number one. Point number two is you just talked about exactly what I do with watches. I love watches, but they have no significance. They have no lasting dopamine hit if you're just out there buying them for no reason. And so I did what you were just talking about. And I said, anytime I buy a watch, it must be attached to a significant moment or a milestone accomplishment. And now it's taken something that would be meaningless for me to go out and buy a whole bunch of, and it's made me have restraint. And it's made me actually appreciate each time I get one, because now I can look at it and say, oh, I remember three years ago, I bought this one because I did X, Y, and Z. And I was so proud of hitting X, Y, and Z. And so those are my, my two purchasing points right there. Put it through those two tests and uh, you'll make much better decisions. Yeah, and I think you, you, just to build on that one more block there, it's, it's not unhealthy to buy things. This is in fact just a reward for the hard work you've done. That's the whole reason that you've worked hard. So you should reward yourself, but you should understand why, right? Like I closed this deal. I, I broke free in this way. I, I ended this relationship, whatever it is, because every time you look at that watch, you're going to get reminded, this is something I worked really hard for. And man, does it feel good. It feels completely different. Cause let me tell you this, if Chris went out and spent a million dollars on watches and brought home 10 of them or 20 of them, the thrill would be gone. One, gone. all diminishing returns. There's no more excitement. Yeah. So look, Chris, I know you're on a tight schedule. I want to respect that. I'm having a ton of fun, you know, talking about so, unpacking your mind is just ever fascinating for me, but I, I do want to respect your time. So I just want to close this off with a, a few questions. One is as somebody who's trying to build financial prowess, um, I know you offer a lot of resources, uh, experiences, just tools. How can people find the building blocks to getting their financial portfolio really robust? And, and, and what do you have to offer in that? You know, I've got an incredible course that I absolutely love called The Money Principles. And it's literally just that, how to think and behave with money, especially for anyone trying to kind of reset their behaviors and their patterns right now. And you can find that at thetruthaboutmoney.com. Uh, just go to thetruthaboutmoney.com and you'll see it right there. It's wildly affordable. I built a couple thousand dollar course that I'm offering for just a couple hundred bucks because I want the right people to be able to get it. And that one's changed a lot of lives. But the other thing is, listen to my show. It's totally free. Go to chrisharder.me. The podcast is right there. My goal in life is to give nine tenths of my information for free and then charge for one tenth of it. And I believe if anybody adopts that policy, then you're going to have enough loyal customers whose lives you've changed, whether they've spent a dollar with you or not forever, because no one can get mad at the guy or the gal who gives nine tenths of their, their knowledge for free and says, hey, after you've done all the free stuff, go check out this thing that's for sale. Beautiful. Yeah, I think everyone should for sure listen to the podcast. That's the kind of thing where I recommend just, this is how I rewire my brain. First thing I wake up in the morning, instead of letting my mind go wherever it pleases, I turn on a podcast. Right now I'm listening to All In with Chamath and Dave Sachs and those guys recommend that one. But first, start with something that's gonna rewire your brain in a way that is programming it to be productive. And, and Chris's podcast is the, is the perfect start for that. Or 
you know, whether you're more mature in this process, obviously he's done a lot of angel investing and has some, some very high profile partners. I don't know how much I'm disclosed to say, so I won't, but some very high caliber celebrity partners and he will take you through the whole journey. So definitely start rewiring your brain with the money mindset. And then of course, of course, you know, that's what really unlocked me as an entrepreneur was taking a course, even though I don't apply all of the principles today, it made me think about these things in a structured way. And when you have structure, then your creativity can flourish. So um, I will leave links to the podcast, to the course, uh, to all the books we discussed in the show today, in the show notes. And I just want to tell one quick story because I wanted to say it earlier and I I don't want to waste anyone's time, but after my first company, I was $70,000 in debt. And I read the book, The Money Master of the Game by Tony Robbins. Highly recommend it. Leave it in the show notes as well. He talked about people who were way deeper in the hole than me, and they came out like seven, eight-figure millionaires after a few years. I'm talking about like three years. I was like, that's literally impossible. But I read the book. I I bought ETFs back then. That's one of his biggest recommendations in the book. But anyway, three, four years later, I completely had dug out of the hole. I I passed the six-figure mark, the seven-figure mark. And it's just crazy how, uh, how possible it is, how realistic it is. And I think you've really illustrated that. You know, you've had your share of, of, of hard experiences financially, but anybody can turn it around. We didn't even get to tell the story. We will on a follow-up show. Yes. Lori and I were completely below zero starting over just you know, 12 plus years ago. Guys, it can happen quickly. I know it feels light years away and like it's not even worth making an attempt at it, but I promise you, feels like it happens so quickly when you just take step one, you know, put that one foot in front of the other, do the basics, get consistent and get the right people in your lives. They're going to reinforce how you want to behave and, and how you want to think you do that. I promise things are going to feel like they're looking up real quickly. Yeah. I, I remember right after I read that book, I had pretty much all I had to my name besides that debt was uh, like 12 grand in a, a 401k. It was in a, Vanguard fund. I rolled it over after I left my employer. I was, you know, entrepreneur, AKA out of a job. That, per- <laughs> that particular fund uh, has more than two and a half X. That's since then. awesome. 10 years, That's right? Awesome. Just a solid, consistent ETF. Didn't have much money in it. I continued to put money in it and stuff, but just over time, it, it compounded a lot. So during that shit experience, now it's turned into a decent sum of money. People um, so. underestimate what consistency plus time will do for them. Well, Chris, look, I really appreciate you. I've gotten goosebumps a few moments in this show, and I just know that that's really hitting me at a, at a deep level. So I appreciate your openness. And you're just such an amazing human. I, I see all the charity that you do, guys. If you don't know, Chris gives away most of his money. He does a lot of charity. And it's so respectful to me. And I'm sure it pays you back in dividends. I'm sure it's an investment that we're, we won't even talk about it like that. But it's, it's just really respectable because you really have to make a big sacrifice up front to do something like that. So, Chris... Much love, brother. I really appreciate you coming on. And I really look forward to booking a uh, a follow-up if you're open to it. And uh, appreciate you sharing your heart today. Dude, totally open to it. I love the way you live life. I love the way that you represent how people should show up in life. So always count me in. Beautiful, Chris. All right. Well, I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, buddy.